This podcast was recorded on Gadigal land. Branch Out would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Here on Branch Out, we love to talk about plants. But not everyone feels the same way we do. The way communicators talk about plants and environmental topics influences how the public perceive topics such as climate change, bushfires and the extinction crisis. So today on Branch Out, we're investigating science communication, how it can improve and why it's important. My name's Laura Skates and I'm a botanist and science communicator. Laura is based in WA and I actually first met her when she was doing her PhD in carnivorous plants. Since then, she actually finished her PhD and she's been exploring a career in science communication. In particular, she's been working on a literature review which examines the role of science communication, specifically in botanic gardens. Yeah, I was doing a literature review as part of an Australian postgraduate research internship um, with the Friends of Kings Park. And one of the things that I was finding through looking through all the academic literature about science communication at Botanic Gardens is that, yeah, sometimes the science is sort of seen as something that's maybe in the background mm. or something that's not really for the, the general visitors to the park. Um, but in reality, it is. It, it's, it's for everyone. And so it's really important for botanic gardens and places that are doing science because there's, there's a lot of science that happens at botanic <laughs> gardens and sometimes people don't realise that it's, that it's there. It's sort of, yeah, maybe in the, in the background a little bit. This feeling of plants being in the background is sometimes known as plant blindness or, more recently, as plant awareness disparity. Basically what it means is this inability, I guess, for people to be able to see or notice plants in their own environment. Um, so this idea that, I guess, people aren't really as aware of plants around them. So I guess it's a few things. One is that, you know, if you're looking at an Australian bush scene, for example, a lot of people will just see all of the plants as a kind of backdrop mm. for the animals that are moving through. Um, and they might not really recognise the individual plant species. They might not really see the incredible diversity of the plants. They might not really notice the plants as much. Engaging people with the science behind plants requires some innovative thinking. One of the examples I really like was out of Kew Gardens. Um, it was a study where basically they were comparing people that were going just on a general garden visit uh, and then also people that were going on a visit to a specific walking trail, which was the 12 trees of Christmas. Um, so it was, it was, yeah, sort of comparing, you know, how do people go about in the gardens um, just on their normal everyday kind of visit and then how are people going about on this uh, specific walking trail. And the researcher was looking at what kind of conversations families were having on these trails and whether they were really talking about science or not. Mm. Um, and yeah, some of the interesting things they found, one was that in their sort of general garden visit, some of the families were mentioning, you know how there's those little taxonomic plots mm -hmm. next to plants that have the scientific name and the family. Um, one of the families was saying, oh, 
you know, this isn't really for us. This is for the scientists that are visiting the park. Um, oh. Even though, yeah, the, the, the plaques are meant to be there for everyone to, to be able to know the name of the plants. But then on the specific, like the specially designed 12 Trees of Christmas walking trail, which was really designed to provide families with opportunities to talk about the science mm-hmm. through this interpretive signage, um, they were able to like link the plants in the trail, like a Norway spruce, to plants in their everyday lives, like their Christmas tree at home. And then they could learn a little bit more about the, I guess, biology of the tree and the sort of scientific stuff behind it. The term science communication is relatively new, but the idea of storytelling and passing on knowledge dates back over 65,000 years through Aboriginal peoples in Australia. Hi, my name is Renee Corson. I'm the manager of First Nations Education and Engagement at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Sydney. I'm also a First Nations woman, so my family come from Wiradjuri country in Albury, New South Wales. To try to understand this more, I caught up with Renee Cawthorn to ask about her relationship with plants and culture. Um, My relationship with plants has been quite interesting. It started when I was working at the Children's Hospital at Westmead um, compounding chemotherapy. And it was when I started compounding all these medicinal preparations and understanding that a lot of them are derived from um, natural plants it made me realise that there was a lot of knowledge that we could also be learnt from our traditional bush foods and medicines. And so when I applied to go to university to do a Bachelor of Science, what I originally wanted to study was looking at plant properties and looking at our traditional plants. But when I found out that the university gets rights over the knowledge, um, it really made me question about how I would go forward with the research and my career path. So it's been really interesting for me. My relationship is, um, you know, very academic, but also on the other hand of learning from the elders on the country, but also the local elders in the communities in which the gardens are located. It's clear from hearing Renee speak that Western science needs to seek out opportunities for learning from First Nations science. Renee says there are ways that this can happen, and it's really important some distinction between the two, but they can also complement each other quite nicely. So Western and science and First Nations people science, if they work together in the right ways, then, you know, we can have some really great outcomes. First Nations peoples have over 65,000 years of worth of knowledge of this land and um, also land management practices. And I think if we can bring the two systems, the scientific practices together that create better outcomes, then it's worth looking at for a better future for everyone. Thinking about First Nations knowledge, how deep does the connection to plants run? Well, Australia's First Nations peoples have a deep and intrinsic relationship to plants. So it's through our kinship structures and our totemic relationships, our social roles and responsibilities to care for country, to ensure that balance is maintained in the natural environment. So plants were a valuable food resource, providing part of a nutritional and well-balanced diet, but they also provided medicinal benefits, and this knowledge was held by our traditional healers, which were known as medicine women or men. For example, the Melaleuca paperbark, known as the tea tree, the leaves from this tree has a white powder that contains antibacterial and antimicrobial properties. 
That's fascinating. It's such a like an amazing and useful thing. Yes, um, the plant has many different uses, as do most of our native plants. But it's how um, First Nations peoples have observed the land over sixty-five thousand years, and then um, watched and scientifically tested different methods and ways of doing things to work out, you know, what's the appropriate material for making string, for example but also knowing what plants you can eat, what plants you can't eat, and um, what has also got nutritional and medicinal values in it. I think that's something people forget, that science at the core of it is thinking something might work or wanting to test something out, testing it out and finding answers, which is not something restricted to lab work and, you know, the science we might see on TV or in pop culture. Yeah, so it's pretty much science done in the field and through mm. through that constant observation, but also the knowledge that we've passed on through the generations to be able to understand what's been learnt before. How was that knowledge of plants traditionally passed on? So most First Nations people's knowledge is passed on orally, so nothing was written down. So it's passed on through our songs, our dances, our stories and our art and our law, which is L-A-W-N-L-O-R-E, which is our connection to country and responsibilities to care for and look after country. Do you feel like that knowledge is disappearing or is it just not as noticed as it should be? I think that um, knowledge is still being passed on and it takes place in all different forms because it's been influenced and regulated and even subdued by government systems and policies. Mm. So traditional knowledge and ways of learning are passed on through cultural teachings and learning through traditional ways of knowing and being and doing and through learning from your elders. So observing, practicing, experimenting and through walking on and walking with country. And I think that's the difference between the Western and the First Nations ways of, you know, holistic views of viewing the world, but also in the way that we care for and look after the environment. I think, well, Australia's First Nations people are Australia's first scientists and have managed, maintained and sustained Australian landscape for tens of thousands of years. So First Nations peoples have a deep relationship and knowledge of the local environment and the ecological systems and have adapted to changes in that environment, even living through an ice age 20,000 years ago. First Nations people's ecological knowledge and practice provides an invaluable contribution into natural land management practices and sustainable practice that may even help to provide alternative solutions to ecological and land management problems such as climate change. However, it's important to build relationships and partnerships with First Nations peoples that provide equitable outcomes and promotes the advocacy of First Nations people and their cultural knowledges. When we talk about First Nations science and traditional knowledge of plants, you know, as a Western community or maybe in a science area where it is predominantly white people how can we make sure we are being respectful and communicating this knowledge in the appropriate way i think it's important to consult with the traditional custodians and knowledge holders and seek permission to use any of that cultural information so it's about building Mm. reciprocal relationships with first nations peoples over time 
So besides understanding your local community um, protocols and your systems of governance, it is very much like any other social situation. You're not going to share everything about yourself or your knowledge when you just meet a person. It is when you build yeah. trust and rapport that information can be shared openly, honestly and respectfully. What would be an ideal success in improving that? Like, what do you see as a successful outcome? I think it's about um, talking to communities, understanding their issues and understanding um, how you might be able to assist them and then trying to find a way to work together to achieve a shared outcome and that provides, you know, benefit sharing amongst all parties involved. Is it a bit of a misconception that, you know, this should be all down to First Nations peoples themselves? Is that a bit of a burden to have all of that responsibility on yourselves or should it be more shared? I think it's a bit difficult just because of the way that knowledge has been shared in the past. So knowledge Mm. has often been reappropriated, romanticised, and then also used to, you know, develop medicinal um, medicinal properties and medications that on a commercial scale and then no money or profits or even attributes go back to First Nations peoples or communities. So I think it can be a difficult space, but it needs to be done in the right way. So I think it's mm. about building those reciprocal relationships over time and getting to know your communities and their needs and then finding a way that you can work together. Science communication, especially of environmental topics, is complex. It can influence what causes we care about. Someone who has a lot of experience talking to big groups of people about these big topics is also arguably the most well-known science communicator in Australia. That person is Dr. Karl Krishlnitsky. He's talked about science across countless radio shows, TV programs, books, and most recently, TikTok. He says that the first job of science communicators is to translate scientific jargon into a language we all understand. Each field has its own special jargon and knowledge. So a car mechanic might refer to a piece of metal as the con rod, where really its proper name is connecting rod between the crankshaft and the pin in the piston. And so we need, in the case of science, which affects all of us um, on a day-to-day basis, we need these science communicators to turn the work that the scientists do into plain English. Another reason involved in that is that it is enough for a scientist to be a scientist. Why should you expect them to be able to communicate effectively what they do? It's like expecting that a chef is also a car mechanic. One skill is enough for a person. And so there's this special bunch of people called storytellers or science communicators who have a specific useful role. Looking to the future, what do you see as the future of science communication? Pretty straightforward, following an ancient formula going back thousands of years, known to all of the storytellers, which is basically in three parts. One, start off with something amazing to get the public interest, two, give an explanation, Uh, which the public likes because it makes them feel smarter. And number three, finish off with a joke. So the future of science communication involves telling stories rather than facts. Science is not a bunch of facts. No, that is an encyclopedia. Science is actually a process or a pathway or a device to try and understand 
what is happening in the universe around us. And sometimes it's three steps forward and one step back, and we go down to blind endings. But ultimately, we do arrive at the truth, although we still don't know why the full moon looks so much bigger on the horizon than it does just a few hours later. Yeah, those questions will keep us going for sure. Oh, the other big question is why is a vacuum cleaner so noisy when a vacuum is supposed to not transmit sound? And why is fast food so delicious when it's bad for you? We have a lot of listeners who are scientists who we don't need to expect to be the best communicators ever. They're already doing important work with their research. But should they encounter an opportunity to do some science communication, what advice do you have for them to give it the best shot they can? Um, do a comedy course. Yeah, I did a comedy course for three days. Um, and it was a really, it gave me a really good bunch of tools. But you basically want to realise that you've got to tell people a story, not a bunch of facts. I'll give you an example. Suppose I were to give you 1,000 words in alphabetical order, and I then asked you, Rose, could you possibly give me those words back? Yeah, you, no way. <laughs> pretty hard, man, pretty hard. But suppose I incorporated those words into a story, which started off with um, a big banging on the door at 2 o'clock in the morning about four weeks ago, and I looked out the window and there was this huge stretch limo, um, and I went downstairs and who should be there but Kim Kardashian, <laughs> who said, hi, Dr. Carl, love your work. Look, um, I'd love to take you and your wife on a special mystery tour. Got a big surprise for you. It'll be good for everybody. Uh, grab your passports. Do you want to come? And I asked Mary, and she said, yeah, sure, let's go. So we went went to the airport, and there was a private jet, a Gulfstream. I've never been a private Have you ever been a private jet, Rose? No. No, neither have I. So I, went, I, I was definitely having a lot of fun by now. And so we flew all the way to Los Angeles faster than a jumbo can or a 380, and then refueled and went to Washington, D.C., where we had nude mud baths with several American presidents as well as many of the world leaders, and then... The truth was told to us that all of the world leaders are actually shape-changing reptiles from the planet Sol. <laughs> okay, that's the end of the story. I love it. Now, do you reckon you could tell me that story roughly back? Yeah. But could you tell me the words yeah. that made up those story? No. Mm. So the essence of being a science communicator is that you tell a story. You're not going to just tell them a fact. You've got to tell them a story because the human brain is wired up for stories. I don't know why. Well, I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, think about looking at a photograph of a family member. There's maybe three million bits of information, but immediately you can look at that and say, oh, that's my niece. And your brain has unique wiring up in the visual cortex to recognize faces. And I strongly suspect, but I have no proof, that we are wired up to recognize stories as a means of social bonding. Because when you consider us, as a survival animal, mate, we haven't got much going for us. <laughs> our, our fingernails are pathetic little claws. <laughs> uh, the teeth of a dog are so much better at ripping your throat out than ours. Our skin is not as strong as a cow. We can't rub up against the barbed wire fence or else we bleed. But what we have going for us is the brain. But the brain doesn't reach its full potential as a single brain, but rather as part of a society. And so I think that's why stories evolved as a way of bringing people together. Regardless, people remember stories better than they remember facts. 
So advice to science communicators, turn everything into a story and do that science comedy course so you can learn how to finish off with a joke. Carl, it's so clear that you love what you do. What is it after all these years that keeps you going and doing what you do? I just love telling stories because I'm a fairly boring person of my own internal intrinsic worth. But if, I mean, small talk, I suck at, you know, hopeless. But if I could tell you a story about the fact that celery water and collagen water are a complete con, or that humans can eat up to seven kilograms of food in a minute, or that we've got a magical mystery with regard to subatomic muon particles, which might unleash the new physics for us, um, or the fact that the very first Olympic Games almost certainly included females, or that growing muscle does something to make fat go away, and it's not just a straight calorie thing, then people say, oh, tell me more. <laughs> so you've got to start off with something that people want, or, or the myth that today's food is less, carries less nutrients than the food our parents and grandparents ate. These are all worthwhile things to talk about, but you're, what you're doing is you're going for what the audience would like. And luckily for me, I seem to accidentally like what the average person likes. <laughs> I do know you have a growing TikTok presence. Can I ask what that's like? TikTok is a special platform in the sense that every subset of society has its own characteristics. Mm. And so the Australian newspaper uh, is designed to appeal to a different demographic mm. from the Adelaide advertiser. And with regard to TikTok, one third of the people are under the age of 14. Wow. Two thirds of all the people on TikTok are female. Huh. And I didn't really understand TikTok. Mm. And luckily I was clever enough to realize that I didn't understand TikTok. And so I went and asked somebody who did, a six-year-old daughter of a neighbor of mine, who said, dance around a lot and do experiments. And based on that, I then employed my two nieces and my daughter, average age 18, to be my TikTok squad. And they help produce my, or they do, they produce my TikToks. To finish up, Carl, how important is it in 2021, even in a global pandemic, that people still learn the facts about climate change? Is it too late? It is more important than ever that we do something about environmental issues, especially the big one of climate change. I did my first story on climate change in 1981, and I had already read back then that back in 1973, the world's largest reinsurance company was already factoring global warming, as they called it back then, into their insurance premiums because they could see it happen. The company was Munich Re. Now, the insurance companies um, have got their own particular ethos, which is, and I quote, it's nothing personal, it's just business. 
And so before the medical profession recognised that smoking was bad for your health, the insurance companies could see it in reduced life expectancy. And if you came along and said, hi, I'm Rose Kerr, uh, I want a life insurance policy, uh, do you smoke cigarettes? Yes. In that case, we'll charge an extra $400 or $4,000 a year. You say, that's outrageous. We'll go to any other insurance company. You won't get a better deal. And you wouldn't. There's just nothing personal. It's about the money. And they could see global warming happen. I wrote my first story in 1981. And since then, the, from 1980 to 1990, the fossil fuel companies agreed. In fact, they were the, ma- the global warming is real. In fact, they were the major pushers of the science. They employed scientists and used these fancy machines called computers and had conferences on global warming. And then, in 1990, two things happened. Firstly, the scientists said, look, we've known that global warming is real, but now we're definitely saying it's real because we've got enough uh, background knowledge to be able to make predictions. We've been following them for a few years. And yes, the predictions are coming true. Global warming is real. We, the plum cultures, say so. And around the same time in the early 90s, the fossil fuel companies chucked the U.S. And so for the last 30 years, they've been telling lies. And we've had the situation with all sorts of crazy things around the world, including the fact that um, Sydney was the hottest place on earth on the 4th of January in the year 2020, and one fifth of all the forests in Australia burnt last year. And we've also tipped the earth off its axis by melting so much ice that we've redistributed the water. And I'm pretty confident, I'm still chasing this story up, that we have actually shortened the days. And 32 of the shortest days ever to appear in human history happened last year. Think about an ice skater on one leg. Yeah. They're spinning fast. They put their arms, their arms are out. They bring their arms close to the spin axis of their body and they go much faster. In the same way, if you get the ice that's been melted further away from the Earth's spin axis and you melt it and it turns into water, well, it runs downhill. And it gets cl- so there's all these things happening, but nothing so far has been irreversible. But there's a few glaciers in Antarctica that, should they pop, melt, and release the ice behind them, would be irreversible. These include things like the Thwaites Glacier, which is about the size of the United Kingdom, and we thought that it was grounded on the ocean floor and not moving, but now we know that it's moving at two kilometres a year and it's floating. And behind it is a couple of thousand kilometres of ice on land. And if that were to pop, we'd be looking at half a metre to a metre of ocean level rise in 10 to 20 years. And that, uh, that, that is reversible, but over a period of many hundreds or thousands of years, it is definitely not reversible in our human lifetime. And that... And the good news is that the reversible isn't something take to it. And the good news is that nothing irreversible has happened. It's still working. Okay, we can reverse it. With today's technology, we can stop and reverse carbon dioxide levels and global warming and climate and bring them all back to what they were in the 20th century with today's technology. And it would be cheaper and better for everybody in the world. Um, the papers by the International Monetary Fund, I talk about this in my latest book, Dr. Powell's book of Climate Change Science. Papers by the International Monetary Fund show that um, fossil fuel companies have been getting a subsidy since around 2010 of at least 8% of all the revenue generated by all the governments in the world. 
and it was that sort of was in 2013 when they reported on it and uh 2019 was 2018 was still the same the question is or 2019 the question is will it be the same in 2025 it better not be we, we're, we're getting close to the irreversible events we haven't got there we yeah. can still we can still stop it um but on the other hand we've got the government proudly going to members of the oil producing consortium and getting them to say that no the great barrier reef is fine mm. and putting their head in the sand and denying the existence of climate change australia is the worst country in the world according to the united nations on our actions on climate change we need to do this one i've been doing this story since 1981 mm. do you know that that is four decades i've been talking about climate change but what, what, what chance do I have against a billion dollar a year disinformation campaign? Not much. I can just keep telling the truth. Thanks for listening to this episode of Branch Out. This episode has been in development for actually a really long time now. So I'd like to thank our guests, Laura, Renee and Carl. Branch Out is a production of the Royal Botanic Gardens Sydney and the Australian Institute of Botanical Science. This episode was produced by me, Rose Kerr. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review so you can stay up to date on new episodes and catch up on all the old ones. And if you're looking for more science content and you're listening to this in August 2021, you can find more science content on the Sydney Science Trail website. There's lots of activities and online events for National Science Week. Thank you.